One thing that I always do when I open God's Word to begin preparing a message is to read it, usually out loud, in the original language, whether Hebrew or Greek. And once in a while, even without insight to the meaning of a particular word or a a construct, there will be something where you hear the repetition of a sound. You hear, perhaps, a rhyme in there. You hear maybe uh, the same vowel sound again and again, and you recognize there's some poetic element. Or you hear the same consonant again and again. We call that alliteration at the beginning of the same word. And sometimes that'll make you go, oh, wait, what's going on here? And you'll see that there's the same root behind a bunch of different English words. And you know, when you're reading this passage, this passage in particular, there is this repetition of words that come from the root, which means all or each or every. Pas, pasapan. And you, and you see all these different forms and they come at you. Pasan, pasan, pante, pantate, pan, pante, pasan, pantas. And it's almost like it's a multimedia experience for those original recipients in Corinth. As this was read, those who were in the front row experienced it in a different way. There, there they sat, and as it was read, you know, panti, pantate, and they're... Okay, Apostle Paul, we get the point, if you know what I mean. Verse 8 alone, you can, if you look for this, the all, the each, the every, you can hear when you wouldn'tly translate it, that, that God will abound... All grace unto you in order that always having all sufficiency in all things, you might abound unto all good work. Now, what I've never done in nearing a thousand sermons preached, I'm going to do today. In honor of all this this spit, I'm going to preach one of these old school outlines with all the same letter at the beginning. You ever heard? I, I grew up under this stuff. Like the five G's of Genesis or whatever. And this would normally be, I guess, the five G's of giving, but instead it's going to be all P's. And as it never does, it's not going to help you remember the outline at all, but it's going to be fun for me. So you might want to move back, I don't know, or, or just trust the Lord to, to protect you here. As we look at the P's of giving, and here's a, such a famous verse here in, in verse 7. And I want to kind of branch off from that. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And as we look at this, I want to begin with the person of giving. Who's the person involved here? Who who should be giving? Who has been given this instruction? And the answer, of course, comes right at the very beginning of the verse. Each one or everyone. Right? There's that all idea again. Everyone, not just the rich, not just those who have influence or advanced degrees, not just those who are in a particular season of of blessing and, and increase in their lives, but every disciple of Jesus will live a life of giving. Each one. And for those who don't have as much to give in any given area, it might seem kind of pointless to even try. For the one who has, say, monetarily very little to give out of that need, they might think, well, it's not, it's not even a tiny, tiny percentage of a fraction of a percentage of what some can give. What's the point? 
What will God do with this? Remember, some of the greatest examples of giving in the Scriptures come from people who have very little and seem insignificant, these acts of giving, until Jesus says, whoa, look there. That is true giving. And it's a blessing not only for the one who benefits from the gift given, but from the one for the one who is doing the giving. We see, remember how I said I was going to skip some stuff a couple weeks ago and come back around to it? Well, here we are. Uh, chapter 8, look at verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And so, when you might think, uh, why should I bother to give in any given area because I don't have much to give, God looks down and sees that gift according to what you have. Not according to what you don't have. Uh, Robert Jameson, writing on this verse, says, God judges not according to what a man has not the opportunity to do, but according to what he does when he has it. It's easy to play this game, and I've done it many times. Oh, if I had a million dollars. If I had a million dollars. If I won the lottery, right? I would, I would do so much. I'd buy that strip mall. This is what I say again and again. I'd, I'd help relocate these little stores, and then I'd tear that thing down. And I'd put in a beautiful park and a big sign that says, Now Judson's not hidden anymore. And a big arrow pointed at it. That's what I would do. I don't, I don't get any credit spiritually for that. Because I don't have. And I'm not going to win the lottery because I don't play the lottery because I had math class in high school. But, but think about what people do with what they have in the scriptures. The widow's might. As, as Jesus sits there in the temple... Nothing good to say about what's going on in the temple the whole day. And then finally, he goes, guys, 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 look at this. And there's this little old widow who comes up and puts in a coin that's worth two cents. Giving her, that's where we get the phrase, I do believe, the two cents worth. She puts in this little nothing. And and what people would put in these giant kind of funnel-shaped receptacles, they'd put works of art, they'd put giant bags of rubies and stuff. I mean, this is like... Pirates of the Caribbean time. So people can see, I'm generous. And this woman comes up and just puts in a coin. Jesus says, she gave more than everyone else. Or think about Mark 14. There's a woman who anoints Jesus' feet with very expensive perfume. And then Judas jumps in. Hey, guys, this is stupid. She could have sold it. She could have given the money to, I don't know, me. And then, you know, it would have been better than... And Jesus says, listen, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always will have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world... What she has done will be told in memory of her. She did what she could. And that is how our giving is judged. Based on what we have the opportunity, what we are able to do. And I think in my life I've seen that the more spiritual maturity there is, the less I care about how big something looks. And the more I realize that the smallest things that no one even notices are the most important, the more I would rather take an hour with someone one-on-one than have the opportunity to preach to hundreds because more often that is where the real ministry of bearing each other's burdens and sharing the gospel and helping someone to come to Christ can happen. That's the person. Everyone, according to what you have, 
everyone, each one, will live a life of giving. Then there's the proportion. I'm going to try and get over to you guys. The proportion. 10%, right? Off the top. 10%, that's, that's net, not gross, or is it the other way around? No, that's not what's taught here. Uh-oh, I might rub someone the wrong way. No, not, not, not a bit. Again, 2 Corinthians 8, 12, according to what a person has. And then several times in chapter 8 that comes up, Paul is not pressuring people to give what they did not have or could not afford to give, first of all. And any time you hear someone trying to do that, a preacher on TV or whatever the case, back up slowly. And then when you hit the door, spin and run. Because this is not someone that you want to hear teaching on giving. And we can apply this, by the way, not just to monetary giving, but to trying to exercise a spiritual gift you don't have. According to what you have, give and give freely. You don't have it, you can't give it. We need another teacher for the kids. Oh, I hate kids. And, I, and I'm not really good at teaching, but I'll do it. Guys, they will eat you alive. They look nice, but they'll, they, you know how the piranha can skeletize a cow in five minutes or whatever? If you don't have the gift, there's no, rec- there's no requirement to exercise it. In fact, that's not how we're asked to give. We're asked to give according to what each one has purposed. According to what you have purposed, according to what you have decided, I think the NIV says, that's how you should give. God does not legislate a certain amount or percentage that Christians must give in the New Covenant community. In the New Testament. He just provides us with opportunities to give freely and generously and promises that we will be blessed in those opportunities. How then can, can the Macedonians be used to challenge these guys? This is a great illustration. How can the, the Macedonians who were poor, who were able to scrape some stuff together, how can they challenge Corinth where they're rich? Without even trying, they could outdo uh, you know, these are the guys who call into NPR and no one hears about them until they say, oh, we've got a generous donor who says up to $40,000, they'll match every dollar. That's Corinth. I mean, they've got money to burn. Macedonia doesn't have much. And yet, Paul is explaining it has to do with the heart, with the generosity, with how freely you give, how cheerfully. That's the criterion. And by that criterion, it's going to be difficult for Corinth to match little Macedonia because they gave and gave freely. The proportion, then, is what you have purposed. The place. And I'm not talking about the physical location. Well, you do it at church. Again, this, this passage, taking in its immediate context, is not about the ordinary pass-the-plate-through-the-pew. It's actually about a different special offering that's being sent to suffering Christians in Jerusalem. And so this is not happening. I don't mean by the place. I don't mean, yes, you pass the plate. Yes, you have all this stuff going on. But I mean that this is happening in their homes where each day they're told, or each week they're told on the first day to set apart a certain amount for the suffering Christians in Jerusalem. But more than that, it is happening in their hearts. Let each one give what he has purposed in his own heart. And this is important because giving in the New Testament comes out of, overflows out of, the heart. It overflows. You know that, that old saying, you can't get blood out of a stone? Which, I mean, why do you even need to say that? Who's trying to do this? But, but you know, this is not about somebody coming in and saying, oh, on behalf of the church, we squeeze you and 
outcomes what we need. Rather, this is supposed to be overflowing, freely overflowing out of a heart of service. A heart that says, I will be the least, the servant of all. This is very important because in the new covenant, it's all about the new heart. And when churches get really hardcore about in, in financial giving, emphasizing the tithe, 10%, 10%, 10%. And I have heard of churches even requiring you to join. You've got to give me your W-2s, and I'm going to check it against your giving. Where is the freely, where is the, the, the heart involved in this? All of this is just getting squeezed. It's a shakedown. This is the opposite of what we see. You know, in every, everybody has to give two hours to a small group or go on a mission trip at least once every three years in order to be part of... What, no, no question about whether, you know, someone could take care of your special needs child during that time or whether you're ill or you have an ill family member and you just don't have the time to give. It's supposed to come from the heart and come out of what you have, not out of what you don't. I think we see this beautifully illustrated in Deuteronomy 15. There's a description of uh, the seven-year Sabbath cycle. And in that cycle, on the seventh year, land that that has been taken as uh, kind of a surety for a loan or whatever, or, or purchase will be given back. And there is built into this warnings about not taking that completely into account. If someone says, I need money, you can take my land, but it's the sixth year of that cycle. Don't take that into account in your heart. Here, here's the passage, uh, Deuteronomy 15, 9 and 10. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. But then he, he, rep, he, he addresses the perversion that has been going on in different places. This perversion. And people will actually promote this perversion in this passage. Even while they're preaching this passage, they will pervert this principle. Let me say that without the goofy. Even while preaching on this very verse, they will promote the opposite. I've got all sorts of resources online and tons and tons of books on a shelf of, of illustrations. And sometimes they'll reference a verse. And one of them on 2 Corinthians 9-7 about how God is, loves a cheerful giver, not under compulsion, but out of what you have. There's this illustration. There was a rural church and the treasurer resigned. And they couldn't find anyone at first. But then the owner of the local grain elevator said, you know what, I'll, I'll do it. This guy, he managed everybody's grain, so they all trusted him and knew him and had done business with him. And they said, oh, that sounds great. He said, one condition, you don't ask me for any kind of financial statement or any questions about the finances for one year. They said, that's weird, but you know what? We do trust you. If your methods are what made your grain elevator such a success, go ahead. So he, he took control and after a year, he brought this glowing financial report that the $50,000 of debt had been paid off. The church was debt-free, and there were no outstanding bills, and a cash balance on hand of $15,000 more. And they were elated, and they wanted to know how he had accomplished this great feat. And so he said, most of you bring your grain to my elevator. And when I paid you, <laughs> I simply withheld 10% on your behalf and gave it to the church in your name. 
You never missed it. And now you have seen what God can do when we each give back to God the tithe that he has commanded of us. And then they say, isn't this a great illustration of this? But no, what? that's just really, that's criminal is what that is. And what that does is it deprives all of those people of the blessing that comes to us by freely giving out of what we have, whatever we have purposed in our hearts. Going back to 1 Corinthians, when he first brings up, I want you to do this, you guys. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. As you may prosper, put it aside. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 and 8 as well. This, this, we just looked at this two weeks ago, and we kind of gl- glazed over it, but... As you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Not as a command. When we started uh, accepting this push-pay thing, PushPay is the automated giving platform we use. And we said to each other, is there a way we can turn off the credit card function? Because what we're afraid of is anyone feeling like they have to go in debt in order to give. They have to give out of what they don't have rather than what they do have. I don't remember if we wound up turning it off or if it's still there. But, but there's, there's a difference between encouraging believers to reorder our priorities So that in our time, in our energy, in our finite resources, we will put God first and trust Him to have infinite resources to care for us. There's a difference between that and encouraging people to go into debt in different areas in order that they could give to the church. That's that's never lifted up in Scripture. Debt, by the way, in the Scripture, always negative whether it's a spiritual allegory or illustration, or whether it's just in the wisdom literature. It's a, it's a curse. It's foolish. Freely lending is praised. But no, please, please never go into debt in order to give to a church or charity. This is the perversion that we see. A command out of compulsion. Then we see the principle. God loves a cheerful giver. We brought this up in Sunday school the last couple of weeks. It's often, uh, a fallacy is often employed here. That word for cheerful is hilaron in the Greek. And people say, you see, God loves a hilarious giver. You've got to be like, oh, I'm giving a lot of money. <laughs> here you go. No. Cheerful, you know what it means in the Greek, you guys? Cheerful. It just means, that's just all it means. It's cheerfully giving. Giving out of a heart of happiness. Not giving out of, oh, I guess I have to do this. That, that's not what God wants. In fact, if you go back and you do the study on that word hilaron, it comes from a word for, basically, it's emphasizing free will. You, you, you ever hear that we're going to be taking a free will offering at a church event? My first thought is always, as opposed to what? You know, put the money in the, in the plate now. or <laughs> Getting lead salad. I don't know. Free will offering. This is how giving in the church goes. Whatever you're offering of yourself, freely. When we look at, at verse 6 here, right before that super famous passage, the point, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That word bountifully literally means with blessings. That's, if you go back and trace the root 
and maybe I'm committing the fallacy here too, but recognize that with the blessings is at the heart of this word. Paul is expanding here a well-known proverb, you reap what you sow. Right? You, you, you sow evil, you'll reap evil. You sow happiness, you reap happiness, whatever the case. But here he's taking it and tweaking it and turning it a little further. The Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, the prophets, the Gospels, they all say you reap what you sow. But here he says, as far as you reap, that's how far you sow. You sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. You sow bountifully with blessings, you'll reap bountifully. And then he takes it even further in verse 9. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Describing here a righteous man. He has dispersed, I think the NIV and the King James say, as, as seed is thrown without anxiety about where each little grain will land, that is how the righteous man gives. Not that we don't use wisdom in how we give. The deacons are very careful to use wisdom in how we take your gifts to the fellowship fund and help people to do the best. But once we've done it, we don't wring our hands and, oh no, what if they misuse? No, we've given. We've given freely. We've given out of the overflow of your love and act of grace. And so we don't sweat it. God's in control. And what we see here is that this seed language is very similar to the talents parable, where where some bury their talents, some use their talents, and they're rewarded accordingly. And, And the one who buries his talents is told, this wicked servant, get him out of my sight. He's no longer my servant because he buried what I gave him. We're given what we're given as seed. Not to be burned through foolishly, not to just be buried deep and not watered and not cared for, not to be wasted, but to be cultivated and multiplied in order to bear fruit. That's the principle. And then, as we go into verse 10, we see that he tells us of the provision. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Here he's paraphrasing Psalm 112, verses 5 and 9. And it's frustrating that Psalm starts with P, but I can't do that with it. It is well that the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. And we have an unusual thing here in this verse in the Greek because the the word for poor in the Greek, almost everywhere else in the whole New Testament, is this word that that means uh, bending down and begging. Someone who's reduced to begging because they're, they're unable to do anything else. And that is their life, is begging. But this one here actually comes from the word to toil. The description is one who toils and works, but is still stuck in poverty. And the church is to come alongside such a person and to help. And the kind of righteousness that gives alms to the poor endures forever because it comes from God's righteousness and it leads us back to God's righteousness. And God's righteousness will never fade away. I mean, we do read in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. But the one who is not able to work, Scripture presents his due as being alms from the church to care for that person. Not to judge, not to sneer, but to give and give freely. 
There's a couple of passages that are referenced here by Paul. In Hosea 10.12, we read, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. And when we read that, and then we read the the verse here that Paul's quoting it in, we see that, that righteousness is the reward for righteousness. Now, here's my righteousness I'm sowing, and then you reap more, and you go, oh, great, more righteousness? Well, yeah, we hunger and thirst after righteousness. In, in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. We sow it, and then we reap it tenfold, a hundredfold. We, we are blessed, we are filled. And then in, whoa, I'm way off base. Hold on, let me get back to the right page, which matches my tie and my socks. Unrelated. 11a. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. Again, there's that each, all, every stuff. This this blows away the teaching you might hear from a televangelist or in certain kinds of churches. You have to offer a seed offering. You give the church a whole bunch, more than you can afford, but trust that then God will give you back tons of money. And this is a Ponzi scheme, a cosmic Ponzi scheme, to actually get rich. That's not what the offering, that's not what the giving, and that's not what the rewarding are about. We are given the reward of righteousness, of more opportunities to give. If you are faithful in a little, you will be entrusted with more. It's, it's not that God would teach this principle and then give you a bunch of extra uh, mammon in order to defeat the very principle he's teaching. No, God's provision is best described in verse 8, and that's the one with all the P's there when you're looking at it in the Greek. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God is able. Ephesians 3, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Followers of Jesus will often hold back because we're, we're worried. We're worried about having enough to meet our own needs. And it's because we've been burned everywhere. And so we hold back and we, we say, Is God able to provide? This answers that question. He is able to do more than we would ask or think. This is why Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, teaching us to trust God to provide what we need when we need it. We saw a reference to that collection of manna a couple weeks ago. And how they'd all gather, and, and no matter how much or little they gathered when they got back, they found that they each had an omer for each person in their household. Enough to eat for that day. What we didn't mention was that when those who tried to double up on any day other than the day before the Sabbath, and they tried to keep some overnight, what happened? Yucky, is what Kim says. Yes, it got full of worms, and it was putrid and, and gross, and God was teaching them, trust me, each and every day. Now be careful. This is not teaching that we shouldn't invest, we shouldn't save we read the wisdom literature and we, we read in Proverbs 6, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer, gathers her food in harvest. 
Proverbs 21, precious treasures and oil are in the wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Yes, yes, save. There's, there's a difference between a simple wise saving and the rich fool who said to himself, well, I have more than I can even store. Should I give out of how much I've prospered? No, I'll build more barns in order to store more. And of course, the angel of the Lord comes to him and says, you foolish man, your life is required of you this very night. There's a difference between those faithful who went out and used the talents they'd been given. A talent is just a, a, a currency, uh, a denomination of currency. They used those, those talents in order to get more talents for their master versus the one who buried it in the ground, that wicked servant who did nothing. And it's all done, according to this verse, so that. So that what? Verse 9, or rather verse 8, we see that it's all done so that you will abound in every good work. So that you will abound. God's gifts are heaped on us, not so we can keep them for ourselves, but so that we can all the more abound in giving more, in good works to others. And we see these things abounding, and then in the church we see them compounding. Mother Teresa was once asked how she had accomplished such amazing great things in her life. And she said, none of us can do anything great on our own, but we can all do a small thing with great love. I think that hits on the spirit of this passage. So God will provide for us, but what does this produce in others? This is how he ends. First of all, it produces thanksgiving. Verses 11 and 12. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You've got that singular thanksgiving that's coming up from the church in Jerusalem. Then you've got the many thanksgivings, because what God does when we give and give freely and cheerfully is just what he did when that little boy said, well, here's my lunch if you can use it. Five loaves and two fish. And he began to multiply it. And there were many, many thanksgivings that day. And we give freely and we give cheerfully out of what we have, what we have purposed in our hearts to give. And God will work supernaturally in that. In every way. God will provide for the Corinthians' needs so they can continue generously meeting others' needs and giving resources to advance the gospel. And those who receive those gifts will then praise and thank God. Thanksgiving. Romans 12, we read this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. We don't all have the same gifts. Let us use these gifts if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, for the one who teaches in his or her teaching, the one who exhorts in exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. What does it produce? It also produces praise. We see in verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. What does it produce? It also produces prayer. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. 
And finally, in verse 15, we see this proclamation that Paul himself breaks forth in praise as he so often does. And he ends this chapter by saying, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And you go, Paul, when were you talking about God's inexpressible gift? You've been talking about this gift that you want the Corinthians to give, that the Macedonians have given. And suddenly you're jumping over off topic to thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. He breaks forth because he can't hold back anymore. This unspeakable gift or inexpressible gift is the gift of God's own Son, which includes all other gifts. As we read in Romans 8, He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will we not, rather, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God selflessly gives himself to us in the person of the Son. And and all true Christian giving, then, is our grateful response to that greatest first gift, the first cause of our generosity. And, you know, we we think about giving, and we often associate it with guilt. And I think the reason is we've we've heard some bad preaching along the line, or somebody has turned the screws to you, or, or maybe simply because the guilt should be there because we know we're not giving out of what we have enough. But when we look, even in the world of nature, I was reading about a study. There, the, you know how you always look for studies that say things you like? Every time there's a study that says coffee is going to put you in an early grave, I'm like, ah, they don't know anything. And then when it's like coffee it wards off colon cancer, I'm like, oh, thank God for studies, right? Well, I, I found a study that said exercise can be bad for you. And I said, this is what I like to hear. I read it. And it said they took uh, laboratory mice, and some of them, they put the little the wheel in there, and they let them run as much as they wanted. They ran some. They worked out their little mouse energy. Some of them, somehow, don't ask me how, they made them exercise. And those mice, their immune systems dropped. They responded to the stress of this forced exercise. And, and, and it didn't help them. It hurt their health. The same thing can be seen in giving. It is good for you. It is with blessings. And it is a blessing unto you. And it, and it gives you more reward than you can imagine to give cheerfully, willingly, out of what you have. But if there is this compulsion, this command, this tear, oh, I've got to meet that, it is not good for us spiritually. It does not bless us, and honestly, it does not bless those that we give to the way that it could. It's about the heart. And this is a wonderful passage. This isn't a passage about money. This is a passage about giving and how we give out of an overflow of gratefulness to the God who gave us an inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you gave to us, that we can love you because you first loved us, that, Lord, we can give to the poor because you looked at us and saw us spiritually bankrupt at the side of the road, begging, begging and dying. You walked through the field and saw us wallowing in our blood, and, Lord, you said to us, live, live. You gave us life. And, Lord, as we give to those who we see around us, 
those who are in need, as we give to the church, as we give ourselves to efforts of evangelism and caring for those who are the least of these, Lord, may we do so freely, cheerfully, free will giving out of a grateful heart. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.